listening to 247 Real Talk. Once again, this is your host with my first guest for 2022. We're going to chat a bit about crime, drugs, and abuse. He is an author, or the author of There Was Violence. I'll be right back with Imani Khalid. So good evening, Ikemani. Welcome to 247 Real Talk Podcast. Thank you for being my first guest of 2022. It's exciting, man. I'm honored. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I think that based on the initial chat that we had, this is really going to be um, not only informative, but relevant to the time we are in this, you know, in, in this nation and in this world. And um, before I ask you to give us a bit of an introduction by, you know, of yourself, I'll just let my audience know that we experienced a lot in 2021. We went through the major thing we went through was COVID, but there were a lot of um, side effects of COVID, so to speak. And we've watched society, especially here in the United States, um, sort of elevate certain things like abuse and, and crime and and uh, instances of drug and violence. And so it's important that we have conversations to try to right the ship. So as we share information on this, I'll ask you to start off by telling us, who are you? <laughs> start a little easier. Well, that's fine. Um, who am I? Well, I'm a... Uh... I'm a L.A. native, African-American man, uh, still live in Los Angeles to this day, uh, born and raised in South Central L.A. And, you know, by by trade, I'm I'm a digital production executive. I've hopped around from different major studios from Sony to 20th Century Fox, Disney, uh, former athlete. Um, also a podcaster. I have my own podcast we could talk a little bit about later. So, you know, I would say, yeah, we, we add author to that list as of, you know, recent months. Um, yeah, man, I mean, that's, that's kind of the basic spill <laughs> if you want to get down to it. Okay. So yeah, that's, a, that's a nice, uh, touch of the surface, so to speak, but the whole sort of culmination of, of your experiences thus far seem to be something that you, I get the inclination to believe that you poured it out in this book, There Was Violence, and it's telling a story. So mm-hmm. why don't you start off by, before we get into the details of the story and, and the, you know, tell us what made you decide to write this book? Well, as much as, as passionate as I am about film and TV, I like I love storytelling, but I never, ever wanted to be an author. But a few years ago, I would say about about five, maybe six years ago, there was a, a moment near a beach community I lived in, Marina Del Rey, and that was the genesis and the motivation for writing the book. So the, the, the short backstory was 
I was having, I just finished having Sunday breakfast and uh, I was walking to my car in the parking lot. And then I see what looks like an angry guy looking straight at me from about mm, 50 to 75 feet away. And he looks like he's looking dead at me. And he looks like he's like with each passing second, it looked like he was coming from me. And I had a growing emotional reaction to, uh Oh, I better get ready to defend myself. And the reason why I started having that set of emotions was because number one, this guy was bigger than me. And I, I go and to give you some, your, your audience, some, frame of reference. I'm 6'4". I weigh about 220 pounds. So I'm not a small man. But this guy was bigger, you know, a couple of inches taller, a bit more muscular than I am. And I can tell that he was younger than I was. And his body language, his facial expression looked like every instance in my life where somebody was upset with me. And I didn't necessarily know why they were upset with me. And then the fight started. It also looked like every street altercation developed from the inner city back in L.A. in the hood from where I saw two people fight. You know, you see a fight developing and you see the same body language. But as he got closer to me and I was ready to go to work on him. Like, it was like, you know, there's not going to be any conversation if you're trying to come after me physically. Like, I'm going to take his, I'm taking this dude down straight up. That, that was my emotional window. But the guy ended up passing me. And I, as he passed me, I'm kind of watching him still because, you know, you got to, you know, and I get this from being street smart, from being raised in the hood. And then he passed, but he was actually looking for his lady friend. And he was just really just looking through the parking lot for her. And, you know, I, I walked away from that moment, you know, just really emotionally charged. But I also started feeling silly as my emotions ramped down. And that was a moment where I said to myself, like, look, man, something is up. Something is going on with you. We got to get to the bottom of it. And in previous years, you know, like I know, you know, that I came from a lot of street violence. I know I came from a lot of domestic violence in the home. But I, I you know, and I've had therapy one on one. I've had at least three or four therapists in different, you know, over the over, you know, over the years. But we never really dug deep and explored the violent trauma. I wasn't using the language. So to wrap up the setup, you know, I went to the grocery store. I went home and I started journaling and journaling and journaling. And three months later, man, I had, Julian, I had a, I had a 90,000 word document just exploring everything from my earliest memory as a child on through finishing high school. And what I found was like, you know, the common thread to a lot of my issues personally was there was violence. And it wasn't just violence affecting me. There was violence impacting my siblings and my parents and people in my neighborhood. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I got to do something with this because part of my, uh, 
priorities is about service. And I thought, well, if this is happening to me, damn, like what is happening to people in other cities? People who are victims of religious violence, you know, sectarian violence. What's happening to people in war-torn countries? What's happening to women of, you know, with sexual violence? I'm, I'm thinking of everybody. So that was the motivation to convert this long 90,000 word journal entry into a book and to get it into as many hands as possible. Okay. So as I'm listening to, especially the, uh, the drama unfold of the, the stare down, so to speak, that was um, obviously was two different stories happening at the same time, but because of your experience, you know, it became part of your world. Um, mm-hmm. So when, when, you know, this dude is staring, you think he's staring at you. I'm thinking that part of that reflection probably went back to maybe where it all started, where it all started in your life, because something got you to that point that, um, it affected you that much. So in trying to capture or as an audience what you were feeling, everything, and that may be difficult because it obviously comes from a very intense place. Why don't you go way back to the childhood and start with the childhood memories, you know, and, and we'll sort of work from that point up to where we are today. Okay. So... Yeah, doing that expert. Well, let me let me quickly. If I can, I quickly set up where I come from and where. Sure, it's, sure. Uh, where, yes, go ahead. You're you all you. Okay. So to, it's interesting for people to know where where America was at by the time I came along. I was born in 1970, so this is a this is a stage of uh, in American history where we're coming out of the civil rights era, where black people were traumatized by, you know, especially racist Southerners, uh, racist police, you know, law enforcement. So my parents came to L.A. from the South. And um, so in L.A. at that time, you know, and we're talking now around 1975 is, is when street gangs really started to ramp up in L.A. And, you know, there was drug use with like LSD and PCP. So... By that time, my earliest memory is, you know, being nestled between my two, my two older sisters, because I'm the youngest of four. So I was nestled between my two oldest, my two older sisters, and they were locked into a back house we had, and they were terrified and crying. And the reason why they were terrified and crying is because something upset my mother, and my mother was... To this day, I contend the toughest person I've ever known. And my mother was banging on the door, trying to get in. She was trying to get at my sisters, but they had the door locked. And, you know, at some point she she used her heavy stature, her heavy frame, man. She got through that. She busted in the door and she started beating them with a with a, uh, a barber's belt. And I was caught in the middle of it. You know, so that's that's my earliest, earliest memory. Like I to this day, none of us. And I've had a conversation with my older sister. She doesn't understand what my mother was so upset about. But going forward, 
you know, and I think we talked about this when we had a previous chat, like I would describe my home, our home as an emotional minefield because being a young kid, it's like you don't have the life experience to know what's going on and what's going to set somebody off. And, and what was happening is that you're talking about my two parents, two people who came from abusive homes. Like my mother was beaten. My mother was, you know, uh, there was an attempted kidnap in her home when she was a young girl. My, there was gunplay in my mother's home and she lived in rural Louisiana. And so you're talking about, we had two parents that really didn't have, I mean, they were loving. Let me, don't get me wrong. They were loving. They provided, we had food, but they didn't really have the emotional tools to resolve conflict and to speak to kids and rear kids in a way that didn't require heavy handed violence. So what I was seeing as a young kid was my siblings getting beaten. I was seeing gunplay, you know, my mother pull a gun on my brother because she's trying to get him off drugs or my parents, you know, having an argument that snowballs into a fist fight or that snowballs into somebody pulling a gun. And from one day to the next, I never knew, you know, like, is this going to be the day where one of my parents kill each other? And it gave me anxiety. It made me really, really measured as a kid. I would watch, you know, conflicts blow up with my older siblings because sometimes they just couldn't take it because my mother was so, she was such a force to be reckoned with, you know, even for a loving woman that sometimes they would run away. You know, and I would I would watch these things develop. It was almost like watching, you know, a prison breakout or, or slaves run away from like some old movie from the slavery era. And so like in the home and we can get to what happened in the street whenever you want. But like in the home, that's what I was seeing from the age of five until like I want to say the age of maybe 14, maybe 15 years old. So I'm going to pause you there so that we can get sure. a clear understanding. So. Of everything I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm on the wrong track here, you 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 watched all this violence around you from the eyes of a child, but was there violence against you as well? Because you mentioned your sisters, your mother, and your father, but so far it seems like you were almost a, you know protected in a cocoon. Am I correct? Am I or, or is there more? <laughs> I can see why you got that impression, I was not protected. So two notes. Number one, I got, I got beat too. And it, it was, you know, it was, it was intense, man. You know, with that barber's belt or just getting slapped in the face or, you know, or just getting punched because, you know, I'm not performing in my schoolwork the way I was expected to or, or getting a news, uh, you know, getting a, uh, like a uh, one of those work school workbooks rolled up and getting whacked in the head with that. You know, she thought that was my mother thought that was love, but but so like there there's there's a part of it where I was you know I wasn't safe either. I would get beat too. You know, forgetting to take out the trash or if I if I get a little bit too sarcastic or lippy, I would get it too. But 
you know, it's fortunate and unfortunate that for me, I was a quick study. So I was very watchful and I was trying to learn of what not to do to make my mother upset. Because when she was on the war path, it was a, a very uncomfortable existence in that house. And nobody, not even my father, was really able to control her. Okay, so I'm going to get back to her in a little bit, and you can you can mm-hmm. let me know how deep I can get in with that. But at the same time, was there a a parallel experience with violence outside of the home in the neighborhood that oh, you live? Absolutely. Tell me about and, that. And man, so so I lived in and for for the for anybody listening, you know, during the mid to late 70s there were three major gangs. You had Bloods who wore red and then their rivals were Crips who wore blue. And then you had Latino gangs like Florencia, which is like F3, they call it F13. And then you had another Latino gang called 18th Street. So just like, and what I describe in the book is like, imagine if anyone has ever seen Game of Thrones, it's like that setup. Like, you know, there's different houses, you know, and some, some are allies and some are enemies. So as I got older, um, what I was seeing, you know, like, you know, violence started off with a shooting sometime or a stabbing sometime, but a lot of fist fighting. But then as drugs began to infiltrate the neighborhood more and you would have an increase in violence because people are competing for economics, especially when we got around to the mid eighties, when crack cocaine really started gaining traction. So, violence really ramped up because what you have is you have, you have people who are becoming thousandaires. You you know, you got, you're going from guys earning three and $4 an hour to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And these guys that are earning all this money are now buying twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 cars. They're buying a lot of jewelry. They're buying expensive clothing. So then that, that attracts, you know, your predators, like your Omar's from the, the HBO show, The Wire. So there's, there's a lot of gang activity. There's a lot of shootings. There's a lot of robbery, like armed robbery. There's a lot of, you know, a term that started to uh, arise called carjacking. You know, if you had a nice car and you stopped at a red light, you better be on the watch out because somebody will sneak up on you and steal your car at gunpoint or shoot you. Or if you're in a drive-thru at a fast food place, somebody wants your car or wants your wheels or your rims, they're going to get you. And for a, a kid like me, like I was a good kid, man. Like I tried to stay out of trouble. And that's dangerous because like I wasn't aligned with anybody. Like I later became an athlete. So I didn't have the backup of some big, tough family. Like it was just really me. And so, but, but, you know, you're still a target just because sometimes it's just recreational or, you know, it was like, I've, I've been jumped by six guys before and I was like, you know, I'm still a, a clean cut guy. So, you know, you have this ecosystem where violence will find you at that time. And it's just, you know, and, you know, it's just, 
it's just like, you know, like the, the, a big driver again. And that was just the infusion of crack cocaine, man. It's just, it just brought out the worst in a lot of people and it just made it highly competitive and highly, you know, so maybe because you have young, young men and women who are looking for their place in the world. And it's like, if they don't have a good stable home environment, where are they going to turn to see their gang life? They're going to play sports like I did, or they're going to find a way to take care of themselves with, you know, a surefire way of earning a lot of money in selling marijuana or selling crack cocaine. So that minefield that started out in the home began to expand into the streets and you never knew who was going to get killed. You never knew when, when trouble would find you, like some guys just jump out of a car and just want to beat you just to beat you. Like I remember the first bullet that whizzed by my head. I was seven years old. The first time, well, the second time a bullet was by my head, I was maybe 11. The first time a cop pulled a gun on me, I was, I think, 12 or 13. And I was just catching a bus. I wasn't doing anything. And that wasn't the last time a cop, uh, you know, you know, just the, this, the, the police brutality and the targeting was just another thing all in itself. So like, like that's, that was the world back then, man. It's like, it was interesting because hip hop was, you know, really, uh, you know, came from New York and it spread to L.A. You know, that was interesting from that point of view, you know, but this whole crack thing and and the ramping up of gang membership and warfare, man, it it, it just made it, it put me in and a lot of other people in a constant state of threat assessment, of which is exhausting. And you just don't you just have to be careful all the time. And it was just exhausting. So. Uh, what, well, I guess uh, two things come to mind immediately to ask you. One is um, not necessarily in in the correct order, but one would be when when what was the earliest time in your life that you understood and decided that you needed to seek uh, therapy? And the other one, you don't have, you can answer them in whichever order makes sense. And the other one is, I'm sensing that there was a point growing up through this violence that you eventually, and I think this term is relevant, you found an escape route. So tell me about those two things. Okay. Okay. I'll start with the escape route first. So up until around the age of, I want to say 13, maybe 14, I didn't know what was going to do with my life. It, it, I was just in, you know, like I was tall. Like I, I was, I mean, I've been the same height since I was 16 years old. And um, it was just, I was just kind of floating around, man. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, but when I discovered my athleticism, when I was around 13 or 14, I'm like, oh, it's like, okay, I, I have great coordination. I'm long. I can jump really high. I have coordination, you know, and then, I noticed that I was I was better at basketball than a lot of my peers. And like, oh, I have something. And then by the time I was 14 and a half, it, I started getting attention from colleges. You know, and then it became like, okay, this is my path. Like, this is my lane. Like, I, I can go to college. Like, I can get out of here someday and I can go to college. Like, oh, okay. But 
you know, so like I had that to focus on along with, you know, academics, but, but there was a certain level of anxiety attached to it because right around that time, my peers started, started dying. Like people I knew started getting shot, robbed, you know, stabbed, um, paralyzed from gunshot wounds, you know, like they're confined in a wheelchair. So I, I'm, 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 I'm elated and happy that I have this new toy in basketball, but now my anxiety is, is, is starting to snowball because Because, you know, I didn't, I didn't want anything to take that away from me. It's like, finally, I have something. And I just didn't want to die, man. You know, it was. It, it was a rough spot. It was, yeah, I, I mean, and it's okay to be, you know, um, it's 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 very powerful to hear you tell your story, and and there's nothing wrong with getting emotional about it because, and and as we continue the conversation, I'll tell you why, um, that is so relevant, as you know, um, but I I I, I and you can tell me if I'm picking up exactly where you are at this point, and that is you got, you got to a really fearful point in your life. You got to a point where your options seemed limited. You were trying to, it's like you're trying to break a chain and your, you know, your options of breaking that chain are very limited and, and everything you saw around you. And because you were here, you were seeing your friends dying. Um, it all, you almost felt like, you know, when I wake up every day, you know, is this my day um, to be a victim of that violence and to become just like them? And, I, and, and that's what I'm hearing from you. And, and I think that um, I want to I want you to continue to tell the rest of your story before I, I sort of um, tie it to where I started the whole episode and, and what happened and what's going on right now in life. But um I'm doing this also, of course, to give you a break to, you know, sort of uh, continue to tell your story. No, no, I appreciate that. No, no, this is this is good because, you know, like a lot of it, like, you know, I know that I get emotional about it, but like I, I am, I have really come to terms with a lot of it. But, you know, why, why my book is so and and this is a book, man, people are reading and finishing in one and a half and two days. Everybody. What makes it so powerful is the dimension I'm giving the people. And in a way, I feel like Anthony Fauci. <laughs> you know, it may sound a little goofy, but like, you know, you look at Anthony Fauci, he's experienced with the AIDS epidemic from the 80s. And he's, you know, he's this world-renowned guy who understands virus and pandemics. And for me, I like myself to him because I see the impact of violence and the after effects in a, a much wider dimension than some people may realize. And, you know, like at that time, what people may not understand, like in the seventies and eighties is like, yeah, I mean, what's feeding my anxiety is like, well, 
you know, we're not seeing a lot of positive portrayals of black people on TV. And so to a young man in the inner city in a low economic neighborhood, you don't see a lot of options because the people in authority figures or in positions of authority, they're white people. They're not, you're not seeing people like you and, and that that's not empowering at all. And so, you know, like, yeah, it's like I'm seeing my peers die and I, I'm just, you know, really trying to hold on to the one avenue in sports and school that can lift me out of that situation. And, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things that really upset me. And I don't want to make this about politics, but when I look at media and hear people who I know don't have a background of violence, when I hear them being cavalier with political violence and, and, and racial violence, it tells me right away, it's like this man or woman has no idea what they're, they, they don't understand the implications of what they're saying. Like this is recreation to them. But for me, like I, I was raised around a lot of tough, like, look, it, I can think of a couple of guys that was on the FBI's top 25 that I, a, a teammate, a teammate, a former teammate in high school. Like I know that even those guys were traumatized by violence when they see a car driving in the, at night and it turns the lights off, when you hear a gunshot and everybody scatters. Like, that's trauma. It's just that, guys, we're not using the language. So, you know, part of my motivation in this is, is to really paint a full picture of the impact of what it does to people and how it really stunts development in, in, the, in, in our brains and 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 to bring this forward, like yeah, I've I've I had therapy like starting in my twenties. Like I'm 52 now, but I've had it in my twenties, in my thirties, and my forties, and I'm good with a lot of it. But you know, um, like, but I do realize looking back that that violent trauma spilled over into my romantic relationships from and and I wasn't violent with my my you know the women I've dated. But some of the emotions spilled over to that. It spilled over into my working relationships. It spilled over into my athletic career. Like it made me risk averse or it made me less inclined to, you know, I think less tolerant of some women when they exhibited some behavior that I would see as a young man or even in my house or even with my peers that would progress into violence. So it impacted me in a lot of ways. And again, like that's one of the points I was really trying to drive home and spread to people is like, you know, like you may as, you know, and I'm not saying you, Julian, but I'm saying some of these other people that are uh, maybe a little naive or unfamiliar with violence, like there's so many implications of what it does to people. Like there's even studies, you know, even on a biological level of how it impacts you physiologically. So there's, there's a lot to this man. And that's, again, that's what's really driving me to spread the gospel of, Hey, you gotta look inward. And if you think you have violent trauma, it's in your best interest to start addressing it. It may be a long journey or maybe a short journey, but I can tell you for me, 
to have addressed a lot of it. And, and this wasn't fun. It's, it's very uncomfortable dealing with that trauma. But the beauty of how your life is so much better afterward, I, the way it frees you, the way it frees emotional bandwidth, the way it improves your relationships with other people and opens you up to other possibilities and the, the peace of mind you have, man, it is invaluable. So tell me something. Your first experience or encounter with therapy, was this um, promoted by someone else supporting you or did you, it was this your own initiative? My first encounter with therapy, that was my own, you know, that was my own initiative. And, and, and I think I just, and frankly, I fumbled around. Like I didn't go into therapy and say, oh, I have some violent trauma and some other issues. Let me deal with this. It was more of a situation where I was feeling a certain uneasiness emotionally and lost. And I was feeling like I just didn't have the answers, nor did I have the tools. And I needed somebody to, you know, to usher me to one of many answers of what happened to me. And, and, and again, it's like that, you know, I, I would do it for a period of time, some years would pass, and then I would try another therapist and then another and another. So did you, did you, and I'm going to get, and, 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 you know, if I get too deep into this, by all means, you know, feel free to, you know, to let me know if, if, uh, it's not somewhere no, you no, want to no. go. No, 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 I want, I want, I want you to go deep. Yeah, Let's go so there. I'm thinking of, you know, I've, and I, and I've had a lot of guests on this show and, and you know, with, I've come from all different, uh, experiences in life. And as I think about your experience, I have to think, I'm, I'm thinking now of the part of you that at some point, and I'm assuming that it probably still exists and it probably will always stay with you, but it's not at the level now that it would have been back then. But I'm, I'm talking about the part of you that had to have some really high level of anger at some point as you were growing up. And um, not only anger, but you, you, you go, th I think you would go through a process of blame um, of, of sort of looking at the, the instances and the people in your life, especially when you might've been going through a rough patch and there's blame and there's anger. And I want to know how, how you felt or, or if you felt that way at any point towards your mother and your father specifically and um, how you dealt with that and what were the low points and the high points of that? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. And let me tell you why. The short answer, I was angry at everybody at one point or another because, and for different reasons, like I was, I was angry at my parents. I was angry at my mother for, for seeming like she was always at the center of the violence and the unrest at home. I was angry at my father for many years because I felt like he didn't do enough to keep her in check. I was angry at the drug addicts and the gangsters and some of the, you know, alcoholics in our neighborhood because it ruined the peace of our neighborhood and the optics. I was angry at some, some of the people who I've had confrontations with. Um, there's, there's, so there's, I think it was chapter, 
I want to say chapter eight in the book when I was around the ninth grade, there was a guy and I, I and and I was going to another school and using public transportation. There was a guy that wanted to shoot me because I bumped into him and he was a high school kid and I was in ninth grade. So I used to fantasize about meeting him later in life and other people later in life and, and just, you know, and it's a stupid guy stuff. Just being like, Hey, remember me? What's up now? What's up now? You know, I, I was, you know, angry at some of, you know, like my brother, for example, when he would, he would get caught, you know, using drugs at home, which would, would send my mother into a rage. But the beauty of this exercise of writing this book, and I think a lot of people who deal with their violent trauma, is I walked away from this with greater empathy for people. Because at the end of the day, Julian, man, a lot of people are doing the best they can with the tools that they have, the emotional tools that they have. It's like nobody, you know, like looking at the kid who, or the young man who wanted to shoot me, he can't be coming from a home of love. Like, think about that. I bump into him on accident. I say, I'm sorry. We get into an exchange where we're talking mess to each other. And then he tells a, a peer of mine, I'm going to shoot that guy with his Chrome 38. That can't be a young man with, number one, the tools and coming from a home of love. Who knows what he was going through? And I used to get you know mad at my father, man. But it was like, okay, well, my daddy provided for me. He worked two jobs. He got up at 5 in the morning every day and didn't get home until like 7.30, 8 p.m. at night for years. My daddy was tired. So it's like saying to myself, it's like, how dare you? This man worked his worked to the bone. He worked himself to the bones, you know, and you're going to get mad at him. He's doing the best he can. But the big, you know, just walking away with empathy for my siblings and my parents and the neighborhood gave me like it relieved, it relieved or removed a huge chunk of anger and resentment that I have for people. And, and it converted that into understanding and love. Okay. So as I'm trying to sort of bring this full circle to where I started, before I get into uh, tied into today's world, and we're going to get into that a bit, do you ever currently or recently have you had the opportunity to have honest discussions in a group with your sisters or your siblings, um, not only to reflect on what happened then, but to get a gauge of where each of them is now in their, uh, not just emotional growth, you know, but in, in, in their lives and, and, and whether the effect has been lasting in a positive or negative way. Outstanding question. And the answer to that, so I'll start with the oldest, my sister, my oldest sister. Uh, she and I are incredibly close. We talk about this uh, in great detail. We've talked about this over the years. And, you know, we're, we're very much on the same page. And, you know, the violence in our house is the reason why she left home at 17 and 
you know, she she got into what? An abusive marriage with her first husband. So she she connects the dots of why she needed to get as far away from us as possible. Um, my other sister, who is the second oldest, we're not very close. And one of the reasons is that she, it doesn't, and I love my sister dearly. She doesn't, she's not demonstrating that she's interested in diving into that, into those dirty details. And the reason why I say that is because I believe that it was so crazy in our home and in our neighborhood that that forced my sister to depart from her Afrocentricity or to put it in layman terms. She wanted to get away physically and emotionally as far away from black people, her identity as far as possible. And, and it hurts me to say that. Um, my brother and I kind of would talk about that, but you know, my brother passed about five years ago, but I, you know, but just watching him respond to a lot of the madness is my brother would turn to drugs and sometimes hard drugs as, 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 as his medicine. Right. But he and I, I mean, he and I would talk about it yeah, somewhat, but we didn't really take the deep dive that I do with my older sister. And, um, interestingly, my mother, as I was a kid, would share a lot of details with her upbringing uh, of how she was traumatized and abused and, and terrorized by different people along the way, you know, as 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 she was growing up. And, and to give an example from the book, my my grandparents. You know, and it was a different time, you know, like in the, this is like in the 50s, the 1950s. So they, they sort of forced my mother to date a, a military man. And according to her, this guy ended up raping her and abusing her. They made her marry him. And she stayed with this guy. And finally, she said enough is enough. And she fought this guy and, and actually beat him down from what she and my aunt tell me. And uh, she got out of that marriage. But but my mother, like you can you can look at her as one of these anti-heroes and TV today, like a Tony Soprano type. But my mother, man, she was just really a, I look at her as a scared creature. She, she's she's like she's no different from that animal you see in the wilderness, this wolf or this cougar whose leg is caught in, the, in, in a trap and they're ferocious. And it's like it's not because they're necessarily aggressive. It's because they're hurt. And and my mother was on anxiety medication. And, you know, you know, there's like, a, you know, like a lot of untreated trauma she had, which unfortunately, you know, as much as she wanted to have us to have a better life than she had, she would push that upon us. OK, so what I'm hearing is and this is very interesting. Um, four kids mm-hmm. who came out of this, who shared a similar experience, who came out of it four different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what caused the demise of your brother, whether you want to speak about it, but it seems like 
he was never able to escape. That he, he, he escaped to a certain level, but something kept pulling him back in, so to speak. And that means that he had demons that he never was able to deal with. That's, that's a key word. Okay. That's, that's what his, his wife would use, demons. That, that's the wording she would use, yeah. Yes. You're, and, and, and if you... Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, like, if you look at us from the surface, you know, like, my oldest sister, professional woman, executive director of an agency, master's, you know, graduate level student. You look at me, graduate level student. You know, I have a master's degree, worked in corporate America for like 20 years. People look at me and say, oh, it's, it, you know, it seems like you had a Bill Cosby kind of like the TV show, like a Cosby kind of family upbringing. I always laugh at myself like, huh, just the opposite. You look at my other sister, you know, beautiful woman, um, you know, her and her husband have a successful business, beautiful home, beautiful kids. I mean, but, but like, if you look at us all, you know, there's, there's something behind us, but, you know, I mean, probably, and, and, it, and I take no pleasure in this, like the one person you would look at and say, you know, like I can see something was going on with this person was my brother because like my brother was a, a light complexion black dude. And, you know, there's a whole dynamic with that where, you know, he was considered a pretty boy. Like my mother called him. She, that's my pretty boy. He's bright complexion, really handsome, you know, and, you know, but the, the drugs, man, the alcohol use and the hard drugs, I think really started deteriorating his health. And, uh, he, you know, he had, he died in his sleep on Super Bowl Sunday in 2016, um, but I, I think what fed into that is just, you know, the years of drug use. And why was the drug use? It's, you know, it's the un, the un, uh, the unaddressed trauma and the other demons that we talked about. And so, you know, like the, you know, the violence, man, it just put us in different trajectories, each of us. And, you know, it just seems like maybe the two most, the, well, the, the, Who's well adjusted? I would say my older sister and myself. I, I, and, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope my other sister, who I'm estranged with, is doing phenomenal. I doubt it because it just doesn't seem like she wanted to, you know, as they say in the fighting world, like getting the get into the phone booth and slug it out with your demons, right? But you know, so to speak. I'm I'm gonna I'm Go so, so that's where I was coming with it. Um, we addressed, we had, you know, I sort of addressed, you know, my interpretation of your brother, which seemed to be um, in line with what you're thinking as well. Um, your sister, the one that you're estranged with, the one that sort of um, lives a life in, in a manner where she does not identify with black people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is... Um, I've I've experienced that in people. I've, I've I've come across you know cross paths with several people who have taken on the same demeanor, and I think that uh, what's you know why I want to touch on this one too is because it gets to the bigger issue of how we process and how we deal with trauma and how we deal with our past, and 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 sometimes the way that people deal with such intense trauma is to sort of um, 
provide a counterweight to it by and use blame as that counterweight. So, in mm. in in you know, somewhere deep inside there, you know, subconsciously, I I would think that she's taken the entire experience and wrapped it in a neat package and and and, you know, and put a label on it as being black. And if she put that package away and ceased to identify with it, then it's not real, but in her life, she gets away from all, you know, from that demon. It's also a demon that, that lives there, but we leave it untouched. And, and, and I will, I will liken it to something that I personally experience um, only to, only so that my audience understands and you understand where I'm coming from with this. Um, in 2014, I lost my mother and mm. To this day, there's folks around me who keep and I, and I had to be, even though I'm the, I'm the I'm the younger of two siblings, and I I'm all I was always seen as the strength of the family, the male strength of the family, and so I had to be that throughout the entire proceedings of 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 you know from picking out a casket to you know to the funeral to arrangements to giving the eulogy to being the head pallbearer, all of this. And, you know, there are times when my wife will say to me, you know, to this day, you have not dealt with it. And and so I relate to that estranged sister because I think to a certain extent that when I'm being real with myself, the way that I have dealt with it is I've tied it up in a nice little box and, and, and put a label on it. I'm not sure what the label is. And I've put it away somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that sort of... Um, leaves it pending, but it allows me to move on and exist without actually dealing with the issue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. And I think that's what that sister has done. She, you know, to deal with the issue seems insurmountable. It seems like it would destroy everything she wants to believe about her life and herself because it's less painful. And it is a way of processing and managing because as much as I'm telling you this story and I understand clearly from what everyone has told me and looking at myself at at times and some self-reflection that that's exactly what I'm doing, that's as far as I get because I, at this point, still will not go pick that box up and open it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where she is and that's why she doesn't identify. Yeah, that would be my take on it because, and, and where I'm going with this, not to drag this out is I want to you know, kind of bring this right into current state because I think that um, we, we're in a time that's, and I don't know, you're, you're in LA, I'm in New York. I don't know what the dynamic is of crime you know, or what the comparison is, but there's been an explosion of crime in New York. Um, mm-hmm. almost every day, almost every weekend, there's one, two, three, four. You know, there were times during the the height of the initial COVID crisis where there were twelve shootings in a weekend and and that sort of thing. And there's the drugs, there's the guns, and it, and it almost feels like when I when I first spoke with you and 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 got an understanding of your experience, just like we were right back where you came from, but we're mm-hmm. We're, you know, 50 years away. It seems like a frustration of mine because it seems that 
human, I, I don't know how to put this, but it almost seems like we've stopped learning from her past. And, you know, there's something that, there's a saying that goes, he who does not learn from his past is doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And and it sort of feels like, and that's why I think it's so important. You know, I find a certain importance in your story and and your, um, and not only your ability to tell the story, but the fact that you are telling the story. Because one of the things that the frustrations I go through in 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 in, in meeting so many different people and in trying to uh, be a voice for change in every aspect, politically, you know, even the decisions that. That, that that politicians are making around COVID and everything else is the bottom line is that we were designed to be creatures of evolution. We were, we were designed mm-hmm. to evolve and change. And it's, it's sort of scary when you have a book that chronicles a devastating part of our history from the seventies. And it seems so relevant to what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and I don't know how you're, and I'm, I'm going to get your take on it in a second, but for me that is scary because it shows that, it, it, it kind of tells me that, uh, you know, that in many ways we've advanced technology-wise, et cetera, but as human beings, a large part of us has not grown or changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel yeah. about that in the environment, Elliot. Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> Uh, I, I feel I'm, I'm experiencing a lot of the emotions and, and some views that you do. I, I have a slightly different slant on it. And what the way I see it is the pandemic exposed us. The last presidential administration, the last White House administration exposed us for who we are, who we really are. And in, in IT or, you know, in, in the tech world, they do something I think called a stress test. They basically, you know, try to hack into different systems and networks where they're vulnerable. We've been lying to ourselves in this country for many years talking about, and this is not me trying to make it political. This is me just showing some real life examples. We've talked about how, how, you know, America doesn't see a color, how everyone is equal, how strong and united we are. And we get into a pandemic with an administration that's arguably corrupt. And we see how weak we are. And that weakness has manifested through uh, a, a, an attempted insurrection that weakness has manifested into crime and it's, there's crime here in LA. Now I live in very, I've lived in, I've been fortunate to do well enough for myself to live in very good neighborhoods. I can, I can start walking from my place in 30 seconds. I'm in Beverly Hills. And that's not to say, Hey, I'm this hot big shot guy. I'm not saying that. It's like, I'm saying I'm, I'm removed from that world, but I know the violence still exists. A young man that I've been mentoring for about 15 years, a great stellar young man, a working young man, had a gun put into his face at a jewelry store last month. He just happened to be there. 
So the violence is happening here, but it's, it's, it's a result of the stress of the pandemic, the inequality, the lack of leadership at the political level. I'm talking federal, state, and city. And we're finding out who we are through that stress test. And we're finding out that some people are committing crimes and are vulnerable to conspiracy theories as a result of that pressure, we're exposed. And there's a decision point right now people have to make. It's, it's how do you want life to look coming out of this pandemic and coming out of this national division? It's like, do you want to go back to the way things were? Or do you want to take this opportunity to fix some societal ills and some societal problems and inequality? And help us be a stronger, more cohesive country because COVID may not go away. And you have to think about what happened, what will happen. Let me tell you something. I'm like, I'm an operations professional. The reason I'm great at my job is because I think of head and I think of contingency plans. And so I'm looking at this as a, as an operations guy from the corporate world and saying, how do we plan for the next big event? Like, do we, because the next one may devastate us. And scientists have been talking about this for 30, 40 years. And I remember that. So we have to make a decision of how are we going to address all these different layers of weakness, you know, but it starts out with, it starts out with, you know, admitting to ourselves that we are vulnerable and weak in some ways. And there's plenty of examples and I just laid a bunch out, but you know, man, it's, you know, like I, you know, I, I know the violence is here and I know, you know, I've been to, I've traveled to around 20 different countries around the world and I see how bad some people have it. And I see why inequality and violence uh, impacts people in certain ways. And, and that again is a huge driver and me spreading this message and getting this book and this message into as many hands and as many heads of people as possible, because I see it. I'm not that special. Many people are seeing it. And, so and we got to do something. And, and I agree. I mean, we're so much on the same page here. I think, and, and I guess that's why I'm so captivated by not just the book, but your journey. Um, and the fact that there's a you're 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 telling your story provides this loud and clear message of not only where you are today but what you experienced and I think the challenge here is trying to get the powers that be and 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 that's a whole different conversation because of my if you listen to some of my episodes you know I define powers as the powers that be in two different ways. There's the powers that be that are the politicians, et cetera. And then there's the power that be that actually is the true power that lies in the population, that lies in numbers. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. people believe that you go to the top and, and you get change. And I believe that change starts from the bottom. It, 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 it needs unity. It needs us who are, who are in the belly of the beast to recognize that there's a problem and then to, 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 to unite in, in such a formidable force and scream loud enough that change has to come because 
it just seems to me that those people that we elect who who become politicians and then just go off into this good life are not interested in your story and my story. They're not interested in taking your real life reflection and, and looking at it and saying, you know what? This is really what people experience then and they're still experiencing now. And what we really need to do to make us our lives better as human beings is to is to use this as an example for change. They're not they're not interested in helping us in a way that makes our lives better. You know, we and and the thing about it is, and I think that your family is 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 just this perfect example because when you have to struggle on your own, when you're when you're not only fighting the demons of your past, but you're also fighting the system that is designed to to suppress you and to and to and to ignore you because you don't fall into mm-hmm. a certain category. Not only is the struggle harder and greater, but when you finally break through and you're able to make something of your life, most of us are too exhausted to make the next step to try to make this a bigger change for other people. Yes, yes. And so, you know, it it is this is a this is a powerful powerful, you know, uh, book, I think, just by its title alone, there was violence. I would go, you know, I I would sort of take that book and then make another cover and put them side by side and and show it to, you know, those those again the politicians and the people who pretend to care and say there is violence, there is a problem. This this experience that you chronicled here was relevant to your life, and unfortunately, because. We either have not evolved, or like you said, we've been exposed, and we recognize that in all the talk and in all the fluff, the 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 the, the big strides that that the politicians want us to think we have been made actually have not been made. It's just a mirage. It's just a um, like we saw in the news, you know, during the pandemic, you know, the the richest people in the world went from being worth eight hundred something billion to one point something trillion. While the poor people got yeah. poorer, yeah. So you know, it is yep. not. This is this is this is a myth that we're you know that we're in many times. And I, and I, I guess you can sort of feel how I get into it because the whole purpose of two four seven real talk podcasts at this stage in our lives is exactly what you've written and you. It's exactly that story that get people to recognize that. What you what you've written here is 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 as again is is paralleled in paralleled in some way today in someone's life, and if we don't make a change, we're gonna have this same conversation fifty years from now. We're just gonna have a, 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 a greater disparity between the rich and the poor, those who take care of themselves and do exactly what. You know, one administration does after the other, and that is create this big myth that they're doing something to make a change, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So, right. I yeah, you know, I I wanna as as I you know, and, I, and this is a conversation that could go on for a long time, and I you know, I'm trying not to drag it out. So, I wanna I I wanna tell people to. I want to say this, and then I'm gonna ask you for your uh, a few final questions. But I want to say that. Those who have not lived in the top 1%, whether they want to recognize it, hide from it, whatever, have dealt with or are dealing with some level of trauma. 
And it's not always mm-hmm. in the form of physical violence, but it is. It can be a, a form of oppression. It's something. And when we, if if we, if if people can relate to your book, and 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 look for parallels in their lives, they'll recognize what they need to deal with. And if we can deal with that, then maybe we can unite and really force a difference that actually changes lives so that someone doesn't write this same book 50 years from now. Yes, yes. And so I want to, we've dealt with such power of the negatives in our, in, in that, that you have experienced and the negatives of society. I want you to leave us with your final thoughts as your positives that you've taken away from your trauma. That's a lovely way to end it. And, and, and with every situation, man, there, there usually are positive and negative. So with, with my situation, you know, like if I would have stopped the journey at any point, it would have always, it would have forever been a tragic, you know, some, some level of a sad, melancholy, tragic story. But because I worked through it all, and believe me, I fumbled at it. I did it poorly sometimes. Um, I just got lazy sometimes. There are positives that come from trauma. With my situation, man, my my top asset is mental toughness. I can go anywhere on this planet where either English, French, German, or Spanish or Portuguese is spoken. And I can get my way back home. I can I can make it anywhere in the world. Um, I don't think I can't see anything happening to me where I can't overcome it. I believe I can do anything. I watch some of my peers suffer through things, and sometimes they really struggle. But that mental toughness gets me through. So there's that. The mental toughness. I have a high level of peace, Julian. And what does that look like? Well, most of the time I travel by myself. I mean, pre-pandemic, travel by myself, I'm totally comfortable. Have dinner by myself in a restaurant, totally comfortable. Um, I haven't owned a TV since 2007. I'm comfortable in my own silence. I'm comfortable in my own thoughts. Um, and I think the another huge one is I've freed myself from the anger and the resentment towards family members, towards people in the community, and freeing myself of that has dramatically increased my level of happiness to the point where I have more emotional bandwidth to explore things that make me happy, like writing, like my podcast, like my foundation that I'm uh, that I formed to help victims of violence, to be a better friend, a better lover. I'm a better man today because of what I went through. I don't know how I get to be the man that I am today with people say, man, you're an exemplary person, you know, and other wonderful complimentary things. I don't know how I get to be that person having not dealt with the violent trauma. So like like those those are the different layers of the positive. And, and, and if I can throw one more in is having a frame, a strong frame of reference 
like a Dr. Fauci to, to mentor or, or, or just be a friend to people I know and strangers and help usher them out of their violent trauma and, and, and usher them to resources. So this, this is, I never knew that moment in that parking lot would bring about all of this. And it's just, you know, like, you know, it's just wonderful. And, you know, and I was lucky, you know, I'm lucky some of those bullets that passed by my head when I was seven years old and when I was 17 didn't drift a few inches over and, and just kill me. There was a lot of luck. There was a lot of people that cared about me, you know, like coaches and teachers along the way. Just that I was fortunate to have the right level of support and drive and circumstances to still be living here today and talking to you. Fantastic. And I'm going to ask you three quick things. One, what's the name of the podcast? The podcast is called Misconnected with Imani. You can get it on any platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, I I think that covers everything. Yeah. Okay. Two, where can people get your book? People can get the book. If you want all mediums, the paperback, the ebook, and the audio book, which I recorded and edited, you can get all of that on Amazon. You can get the ebook on Google Books. You can get the audiobook on Apple's platform. I think it's called iBooks or I forget. Just Google, just go on Apple's platform and you can get the audiobook on Apple also. And how can people connect with your foundation? Um, the best thing to do is go to the official website. It's therewasviolence.com. Again, that's www.therewasviolence.com. There's a button for Envia Foundation. You can just click on that. And, and if you want to support, and I hope you do financially, it's, you know, I'm a, my foundation is registered or with the state of California. It's a 5013C. Uh, my core priority is I'm going to, I'm, I'm in the process of building a, a free app for the Android and Apple market to help people identify the level of trauma they're in and to help them find based on geography, the appropriate level of help through whether it's mental health, legal, um, you know, housing, whatever it's in a very early stages, but I really, really need support, you know, from as many people as possible. And that's, that's along with me, you know, writing grants and, you know, I'm talking or in the process of talking to some people as dedicated fundraisers to get funds. So if it's around your heart, you know, just go to www.therewasviolence.com, click on the button that reads Via Foundation. And there's a link on that page where you can donate if it's around your heart and within your budget to, to help build this app. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I'm, 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 you know, reaching out for grants, I'm reaching out to people for, uh, for fundraising and, and actually hiring people for, to dedicate them to fundraising. But, you know, it, it also requires, you know, good people who are, are, you know, as passionate about this cause as I am to, to build and maintain tools like mobile apps and other services. Um, you know, I, I come from a world where, you know, we've distributed content from the studio world to like all around the world. And, 
you know, you know, there's, there's always a lot of maintenance involved and there's always people you have to contract out who are more skilled at that kind of thing in terms of developers and in terms of, of, uh, you know, just all kinds of experts. So not get too long with it. You know, you can donate. My foundation is a 5013C registered in the state of California. We can give you a tax, you know, a receipt that should be tax deductible. So if it's around your heart, I, I welcome any level of donations. Fantastic. Fantastic. Imani, it has been an absolute pleasure having you um, not only on this podcast because of you know, what this podcast is all about, but it's been a pleasure having you as the first guest for 2022, because I think that um, you've sort of helped set the tone that I want to set for 2022. And that is, you know, recognizing who we are, where we are, and it's all about movement, empowerment, and change. So thank you so much for being a guest on 247 Real Talk Podcast. It's been my pleasure. I'm honored. Thank you. And props to you, man, Julian, for, for recognizing what matters in this world and in, in, in terms of messaging and content and what causes us to be better people. I, I really appreciate you for giving me a platform. It's been my pleasure. Uh, hang on the line. I'll get right back to you. Okay. A very special thank you to my guest, Imani Khalid, for an amazing conversation to kick off the 247 Real Talk podcast in 2022. As you can tell about from the tone, it's all about change. It's all about empowerment. It's all about recognizing who we are, where we're from, and what we need to make ourselves better. We cannot continue to go forward and yet remain the same. So thank you so much, Imani, for gracing us with his presence and his knowledge and i encourage you to go out and get that book audiobook however you want to listen or read but use it as a part of your toolkit to get motivated for 2022 i want to remind everyone that you can listen to this podcast this episode and any episode on your favorite podcast app I never want to end a podcast without saying thank you for my amazing audience who continues to empower me and, and motivate me to continue on this journey to make a change and has made this podcast so very successful. If you'd like to leave me a message, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you'd like to leave a comment for my guest, if you just want to touch base and, and find out what resources we have that can help you help others, send me an email at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. And as usual, and as always, until we speak again, take care of yourselves and each other.